Hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. So today we're going to talk about what's shaping up to be a really historic moment here in Charleston, the removal of the John C. Calhoun Monument. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We're going to be joined by a few different guests on the show today. First, we'll be hearing from Michaela Porter, who reports on the city of Charleston. She listened in on Tuesday night's city council meeting when all council members unanimously voted to remove and relocate the statue of John C. Calhoun in Marion Square. Yeah, and uh, the John C. Calhoun statue has towered 115 feet over the square for more than a century. Calhoun is a divisive and influential leader in uh, America's early years. He was twice elected vice president, but he's also known today as one of the most prominent defenders of slavery. Uh, He described it as a public good. He died in 1850 before the Civil War and the first version of a monument to him in Charleston was built in 1887. The current monument rose in 1896. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from College of Charleston professors and historians Adam Dombey and Bernard Powers, who will add some more context to this moment. Uh, But first, we're going to talk with Michaela about what she saw uh, last night in Marion Square. So some context on this. We are recording right at about 1 o'clock on Wednesday. And at this time, we thought that the statue would be down, but they are actually still at work in Marion Square as we speak. Um, So, Michaela, what was, uh, I guess, what what did we expect to happen last night in terms of when the statue was was coming down and versus, uh, I guess, what we're what we're seeing today? June 23rd, around 1130, uh, crews started getting in place. Uh, Calhoun Street was shut down between King and Meeting um, for some heavy machinery, some crane bucket trucks um, to load, uh, to get into place around the monument. Some fencing has been around uh, for a few days now. So they were expecting at midnight on June 24th to get to work and uh, look at the base of um, the f- where his feet are on the, st- on the statue and to start removing that. I think all was hoping, you know, everyone was hoping that things would be, that he would be down by the time people started heading to work on June 24th, this morning. Um, but they have hit some snags. Uh, the epoxy, some uh, glue or, or um, I guess, super glue, um, if you will, what is attached to a bronze um, bracket, and it's also filled with concrete. So they had to bring in a special kind of diamond saw to cut through that material. One of the crane bucket truck equipment had a um, an issue, and they needed to bring in another one, adding on with uh, the fixture and um, adhesive whatever they used to keep him up there through how many hurricanes and whatnot. Um, He's up there. So um, it's taken a lot longer than I think everyone expected. So how, how did, how did we get to this point? Because uh, obviously this is, this has been um, something that a lot of people have wanted for a long time, but there's this, this thing, the heritage act, which seems like it stood in the way of removing the statue. So so how did how did we get from thinking that this couldn't come down to to it coming down? For years, in, in uh, Councilman Robert Mitchell, he's the councilman. This is in his district. Um, he was telling me last night or early this morning that uh, for years, you know, he fielded calls and um, concerns and complaints from folks about that statue, you know, looming so high, um, wanting it to be removed and. Um, He said, you know, our common understanding was the Heritage Act protected it. And upon some research and some digging in this year um, by the city's legal counsel, you know, prompted uh, by the George Floyd protests and all of that, I think that kind of reignited that energy um, this year also being the fifth anniversary of um, the Emanuel shootings. I think that that energy that's going around with protests and peaceful demonstrations as well as, you know, rioting. Um, council was very clear, several council members were clear Tuesday night that this was not a response to reward bad behavior for 
uh, the rioting that took place uh, on in downtown on May 30th, but more of a we're listening to the youth movement going on right now, the Black Lives Matter movement in the city, and it's time. The city did their research and found that the property is owned by the Washington Light Infantry and Sumter Guard. And that's in Marion um, Square, the, the park, right? Correct. Yes. People think it's a public space, but it is private property. But uh, people use it as a public space. And I it doesn't seem like they have any issue with people using it as a public space. But the statue was actually given to the city. So they have meeting minutes from way back of when that happened. Um, so the argument from the city is this is a city statue and it's on private property and it's doesn't follow. It doesn't fall into the law of the Heritage Act. That's when things started getting in motion um, last week on the fifth anniversary of the Emanuel shootings. The mayor um, was joined by city council. They made the announcement Tuesday night. They, they had the vote. And then, you know, all of a sudden they had a a force there Tuesday night with cranes and, and bucket trucks and such to start taking it down. Let me, let me see too, if, um, if I've got part of, part of the, the argument, right. And to give listeners some context too, if, if they're not familiar with the heritage act, that's a, a state law in here in South Carolina that basically prohibits the removal of any public monument to a whole host of, of various wars that are, that are like listed, and then it also prohibits like the changing of names of uh, things that are named after historic figures without approval of the state legislature. And it's part of part of the argument that the mayor laid out though is that um, this monument is just a monument to a person, John C. Calhoun, and. Uh, it's not actually a monument to any of the wars that are listed in that Heritage Act. And so from that perspective, it, it, the Heritage Act may not even apply to it if, if you look at it from that perspective. Is, is, do I have that right? Yes. And the city's perspective also is that if anyone's going to challenge this with any sort of standing, it's the Washington Light Infantry and Sumter Guard which they put out a statement uh, late Monday night saying, we're not going to challenge it. We don't feel we have standing. So we had the announcement about a week ago that the monument would be taken down, uh, but the actual vote was Tuesday night over at city council zoom conference. And like we said earlier, it was a unanimous vote. And this is only a couple years after city council issued an apology for slavery that, that only, uh, narrowly was able to get the votes. Um, so Michaela, I was wondering if you could speak to that, just, I guess, first of all, the fact that it was uh, unanimous, and then also some of the comments from individual members of council in terms of why they said they were supporting this. Yeah, it was a unanimous vote on Tuesday night. I think the Zoom meeting wouldn't didn't give the same kind of um, feel that I think people, if they had gone to city council chambers, you know, there would have been applauding, there would have been, you know, people cheering on, you know, council members or certain people in the public that provided comment. Um, they had, I think, close to over 300 people call in ahead of the city council meeting just to voice their opinions on it. Overwhelmingly, people were supportive of city council's decision to remove and relocate uh, yeah, statue. I wanted to. One person offered to buy it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I uh, I saw that uh, that you tweeted that out yesterday. That really stuck with me. The um, the numbers. Uh, I actually just just pulled that up because I wanted to to mention it. But um, so uh, two hundred and ninety one people called in wanting the statue down. Fifty people called wanting it to uh, not be removed. Four people wanted it to be relocated. And then, as you said, that that one person wanted to buy it. Um, <laughs> Working on finding who that is. Would love to talk to you. <laughs> yes. What, what you want to do with that. So if you're listening, um, let's talk. But yeah, as, as far as, you know, the meeting, it, it was a typical Zoom meeting kind of thing where like Hollywood Square is kind of set up of city council members. But everyone had a chance to speak. Uh, Councilman Robert Mitchell, he, uh, he brought the issue to the floor, brought the discussion to the floor by um, making a motion um, to discuss and vote on it. Um, that's his district. He brought up, you know, how he grew up in Charleston and the Charleston um, that people think of or may have a vision of wasn't the case for him growing up. 
and, you know, urged support from his counsel, ended up being unanimous vote, as we've said a few times now. And um, interestingly enough, a few council members two years ago had voted against the uh, apology for the city's role in slavery, um, was a port city, um, like the main thoroughfare um, for the slave trade. The city did profit off of the, you know, slavery as well. Um, one of those council members during the meeting, Harry Griffin, he said that, you know, he voted against it two years ago. After that meeting, he had a discussion with a lifelong friend in which he started to reckon and recognize his white male privilege and that it was time to take down the statue. So he said he understood that while it was a, a, a statue of, of rock, that um, what it stands for. Um, I talked to Keith Waring uh, last night on city council at the monument. He voted against it two years ago as well um, because he said at the time that this was just words. He felt the slavery apology was just um, was just words with no action. And he said he was happy to see what how much action has taken place in the city in two years. Um, the city undertook a racial bias audit of its police department. And he was uh, confident in the way that the police chief, uh, Luther Reynolds, is navigating through that and implementing change. Um, they've hired a racial diversity and reconciliation manager to tackle different racial issues in the city. Um, she's been working with leaders on the east side about tensions there. Um, they just uh, created a new committee to look at racial diversity issues um, headed by Councilman Gregory and Jason Sacron. And that this was another moment of action for the city. So um, he said, you know, looking back on that, when it was just words, he can say that now there's action. So he had voted, of course, in favor of that as well. And like you said, this this vote was for the statue to not be d destroyed, but to be taken down and moved elsewhere. Do we have any idea right now? of where it might go or how they're going to make that decision. Yeah. Um, as soon as it comes down, it's uh, not clear where they're going to uh, put the figurine the statue. I understand the intent is to take down, you know, the, um, the plinth. I, I understand that's, that's the word that column, um, that long, tall column that everyone sees and the granite basing. So the intent is to, completely get that down to the ground. Um, but where that goes has not been decided yet. They're talking to some academic institutions and museums, but um, the city is, you know, working through that. No, no intel on that at the moment. I know you described this a little bit, but you were down at Marion Square last night and in the very early hours of of this morning as well. And I know we uh, had planned to ask you about what it was like to see the, the statue come down. So we don't have that. But, um, and I was there for part of that time as well. There's still a lot of just interesting um, I images and I think things to remember from that. So what were, what were some of the, uh, the, the moments that stuck in your mind from, from last night as people were kind of staked out in front of the statue waiting for that to happen. As soon as any machinery started moving, like a hush would fall over the crowd as everyone, you know, would look to see where, what, what was happening. Is it coming down now? Um, there was cheering for every little step along the way. Um, you know, when the first bucket truck went up, there was cheering, then another one went up. And then, you know, several hours later, they're going with a, a chainsaw, I guess. Um, and there's, you know, concrete smoke, you know, flowing in the air. Um, people are cheering that on. It wasn't an intense environment. It was calm and hopeful and like an anxious excitement uh, in the air. There was, you know, one person who um, was protesting. Um, she had a sign with the Bill of Rights on it. And um, the, the folks, you know, at first kind of tried to engage with her that were there. There's probably about 200 at, at its most, I would say, that were down there. They tried to engage with her and then they ultimately just ignored her and she went away and ended up, you know, losing steam um, with all of her shouting and everything. But it was peaceful. 
around like 233 is when people started bringing like blankets and picnic chairs to sit and watch it was just it was a calm and and i think everyone was hoping for that that it just be like a calm and momentous occasion yeah and even though uh we didn't see the statue itself come down overnight uh like i said i was there for for a part of it as well from about um i guess around 130 or 2 until about six and it was just an interesting thing to to see like you said it was a other than those moments of excitement of people thinking uh, something was was happening and they're making progress it was very very quiet just people kind of uh walking over to the the Walgreens that's there that's open late um right at the corner of King and Calhoun and grabbing some snacks and bringing them back and just talking amongst themselves. And of course there are other reporters there and uh, broadcast reporters had their cameras and, you know, kept taking their shots the whole time. You could, you could definitely tell when it was five o'clock because they were all starting their live spots. um, I'm sure Mm -hmm. for their earliest uh, news program, but yeah, even though, even though we didn't see the the statue come down, it was just kind of um, nice to see people just I guess just caring enough to want to be there overnight, you know, bringing their long chairs and just just wanting to watch. And like we said, uh, as we're still talking, it's in the process. So I, I've been kind of checking my phone to see if maybe as we're speaking it comes down, but yeah. haven't seen it. Haven't seen it yet. One other striking thing: almost everyone was wearing masks. Oh, that's also good. So being safe in the in the time of coronavirus, um, right? That was one other striking thing. Everyone was wearing masks and uh, people were handing out hands, you know, sharing hands or squirting hand sanitizer in people's hands. So being conscious of, of that. People were that, distanced, you know, kind too. Of echoing that yeah. kind of safe and um, calm and distant. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michaela, for taking the time today. I know you stayed up really late. Um, so so get some rest. But before that, what is the best way that listeners can get in touch with you? Sure. Um, right now, since we're working remotely, email is best uh, to get in touch with me. Um, and then we can connect and share uh, phone number information. But my email is mporter at postandcourier.com. I'm also on Twitter at Michaela Porter PC. So let's, let's chat. Let's talk about issues and things going on in Charleston. So like I said at the top of this episode, we also spoke with a couple of historians today and wanted to get their perspective on this event. So first we have Adam Dombey, who's a historian of the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the American South. He's also the author of the book, The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. And that book was published earlier this year. So here's our interview with Adam. So first of all, just thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. I know a lot of people have been wanting to talk about Confederate monuments lately, so I'm sure you've been busy. Yeah. Um, So you actually, I guess just to start out, you went down to Marion Square last night. What what did you see when you went down there, and uh, when did you decide to, to call it a night? Yeah, so I went down around, I, I heard through the grapevine that things were afoot, and I got down there a little before 11, um, and at first there was a pretty sm- there wasn't many people um, at all, uh, and I sort of scouted around and figured out where you could stand, and most people were on one side of the the park because they divided it, so you couldn't, once you entered, you were, you, you were on that side or you were on the other Sorry, I went to the east side because everyone was on the west side. Um, and then slowly uh, the police presence was the giveaway that something was going to happen, as well as the media presence. All the reporters had their cameras set up and it was very clear that they were expecting something. Then around, I guess, maybe around 1130, I want to say, um, the trucks rolled up with the lighting and it was like, oh, this is happening. Um, as well as some smaller cranes for them to start looking. And then once it was clear that it was happening, more people started coming out. Clearly people were making phone calls and calling their friends and saying, it's happening. I stayed out and I watched the protester. There was like a protester or two 
who was eventually escorted to the other side, to the side I was on, actually, um, of the park, because she kept yelling that this was about the, the Antichrist was causing this and that Satan needed to get behind her. So I think at some point the police were worried about her safety and sort of escorted her to a place where she could do things, where she could yell whatever she wanted safely. And then eventually around, I want to say two, I decided this is not going to happen um, anytime soon. This is going to be 4 a.m. before it happens. And I have a podcast to record the next day. I said, I'm done. And I went home and then uh, went to bed. And uh, but it was fun to watch. It was fun to see the crowd getting excited. And we're, we're recording different parts of this podcast at different times of the day. So so right now we're talking just after 11 a.m. And like you just said, it is is not down yet. Um, they expected it to, to come down um, uh, in, in the middle of the night. So I know some uh, some of us were surprised to, to wake up and, and, and still still see it there, but still still ongoing, like you said. We want to give some some context to this moment, right? You know, everyone's saying this is a historic moment for the city. Um, and you in particular have expertise on this based on the book that you just wrote. So the first iteration of this monument uh, went up in 1887. And that's right during this period of time that you wrote about where all these kinds of monuments were being built across the South. So can you just kind of describe that for us and what was the overarching purpose of all yeah. of these monuments? So this is the first iteration. Or so this is the second iteration. The first iteration, as you mentioned, goes up in the 1880s. The second one, they replace it within 10 years. So I think it's kind of there's an interesting uh, precedent set actually by this monument that if a monument is deemed unacceptable, it can be removed and replaced because this one replaced another monument. So the idea that this is a racing history was rejected by the very people who put it up. Well, not technically a Confederate monument. It's part of a, the same sort of monument construction boom that really begins. And this is sort of at the very beginning of that boom. And the boom extends from like 1885, um, speeding up a little bit in the 1890s, depending on which southern state you're in. And, and then in the early 20th century, you see a lot of them go up. So you see, for instance, um, shortly thereafter, in the early 20th century, you see the Wade Hampton Memorial or monument go up um, not far from the Calhoun Monument. And so these monuments, what they were meant to do is they're a really interesting, they're an interesting phenomenon because what they were meant to do in many ways was to celebrate the overturn of Reconstruction. And if these monuments were not going to be put up in 1867, because if you were, you know, a Confederate veteran, there's nothing to celebrate because you've lost. What are you going to celebrate? Being a loser? So you have some memorials go up in cemeteries that are true memorials, but you don't have the monuments going up that you have go up in public squares. And these they go up after the reassertion of white supremacy. And indeed, these monuments were in many ways meant to celebrate the, the reassertion of white supremacy. And I'll use the Wade Hampton Monument because that's a really good example. When they put the Wade Hampton Monument up, and again, this one sits in Marion Square, not far from, from Calhoun, they sort of celebrated two aspects that were they thought worth remembering. And one was his service in the Confederacy, and the other was his service, as they put it, to the state in 1876, when he ran for governor. Now, they weren't interested in his time as governor. That wasn't really relevant. What they thought was exciting was his time as running for governor, when he led a campaign of terror and violence and threats of violence and ballot box stuffing and outright cheating of various sorts and intimidation to retake the state for whites is the way it was portrayed repeatedly. And so anyone listening to this speech knew when they were talking about the 1876 election, what they were talking about was the reassertion of white supremacy that they said. And they don't really mention what he does as governor. That wasn't important to them. It was the fact that he had won the governorship, which is a very strange thing to think about. Imagine putting up a monument to someone for winning an election rather than for what they do once they're in office. 
Yeah, that is basically what was going on. And so these monuments were really meant to do a variety of tasks. One was to celebrate the overturning of those aspects of the Civil War that white supremacists most regretted, including the enfranchisement of African-Americans. And you actually see a really big boom in each state of these monuments go up after disenfranchisement occurs. So if you look at North Carolina, for instance, disenfranchisement occurs in 1900, 1901, and then the boom of monuments starts immediately after that. And you suddenly start to see these monuments show up in public squares. There's only about four given before disenfranchisement in public squares after that. Calhoun was meant in many ways to remind African-Americans to stay in their place, if you will, as, as the people at the time would have called it. And I think this is an important aspect when we talk about Calhoun to remember. Calhoun was not put up by the people of Charleston. Calhoun was put up by a very small subset of the people of Charleston. And how do I know this? Well, the majority of Charleston, when Calhoun went up into the early 20th century, was black. African-Americans hated these monuments. And so the, the monument, Calhoun monument that was put up in originally was lowered down to the ground and was continually defaced, smeared with excrement, shot at, um, and ridiculed. They just made fun of it for being ugly all the time. African-Americans in the community ridiculed the monument. And so one interpretation for why they replaced it, and it's really, the documentation isn't, isn't really provided for why they claim they did it, but African-Americans interpreted it as that they put them up high so they, could, they wouldn't be able to deface them anymore. African-Americans interpreted this monument very clearly at the time, and they weren't wrong, that this was a monument meant to remind them to stay in their place. And so for African-Americans, they've been fighting to have this monument removed since it went up. And I think it's important to remember that this is not the end of a short form of activism. This is literally over 120 years of pushing for its removal that it's finally being removed. Talking about these types of monuments overall, um, directly Confederate monuments, but also just of of this era and of that that message, how prevalent are they in, in Charleston, especially compared to maybe other types of monuments? So Charleston has a ton of monuments from this era, and Charleston is obsessed uh, with the Civil War, if you look at its monuments. I mean, if you think about all the monuments around town, what are they all to? There's a few to the American Revolution, uh, perhaps, but they're almost entirely Civil War related. There's Calhoun. There is, I think, a Revolutionary War one for Moultrie. But otherwise, it's pretty much ties to the Confederacy on most of the monuments. We have a lot of them, actually. Um, a surprisingly large a number, including some down on James Island, as well. And I think it's worth noting that first off, Charleston throughout most of its history is not majority white men. Uh, it's not who builds the buildings around us. And yet we celebrate white men constantly. And, and you think out on Fort Sumter, you've got some more Civil War monuments as well. The Civil War was four years long. Charleston celebrated its 400th anniversary this past year. That's 1% of our history, yet it takes up somewhere in the order of at least 80% of our commemorative landscape when we're looking at monuments. When we look at, our, uh, at this, we, we definitely have a disproportionate understanding of the past that we learn from monuments, because monuments are not meant to teach history. They're meant to teach values in many ways. They're meant to, and you really, if you want to study them, you're not learning about the time they nominally commemorate. By studying Confederate monuments, you don't learn about the Civil War. You learn about you learn about the time they're put up. And we're only now starting to commemorate other aspects of our history. We have a historic marker for the Articles of Secession being signed. It's it's right downtown. But we didn't have the marker until a few years ago. For the 1868 Constitutional Convention, only in March of 2018 did we finally get a marker for that. At 150 years, it took us to mark the location where the state constitution was written, because it was a state constitution that was biracial when it was written. It was written by a biracial delegation, including Robert Smalls, who was the first one to have education uh, required, public education for the state of South Carolina. And yet we hadn't marked it. I think that says a lot about how Charleston deals with its history. That we can have a marker for every random Confederate's home, 
um, in this town and we can have. But our state constitution that governed the state for decades that was written here, it should be a point of pride that the state constitution was written here, went unmarked entirely until 2018. I, I want to run the risk of, of asking maybe a, a very philosophical and, and kind of broad question that, that maybe I say is no comment. <laughs> really hard to answer, but uh, yeah. Um, I, I am just kind of curious. Um, so like at, from your perspective as a historian, um, I, I know, you know, one of the things that people kind of talk about and, uh, you know, I, I think there are like different levels of, of like good faith with which people kind of put these arguments forward, but you know, so obviously there is kind of this this continuum of like when we think of of monuments that exist around the world, um, some have clearly have historic archaeological sure. significance and or maybe artistic significance, and then we have monuments that more more like what we're talking about that are are very recent. And I'm just kind of curious from your perspective as a historian when you're trying to think about like historical significance of, of these things like what what kind of factors it's a good question and i'll point out one thing real quick before i forget people always are saying oh you're trying to erase our history i argue that by removing monuments we can actually be preserving our history um for most of the history of a lot of these locations there was not a monument there the calhoun monument is relatively recent marion square is older than the calhoun monument if i want to know what marion square looked like in 1860 when the civil war was going on i have to remove the calhoun monument um, we are restoring the historic landscape by removing monuments in some cases. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is I'm not an art historian, but our historians are able to speak to where a monument is relevant or not um, and how it shapes art. And that's something that they're very capable of doing and frequently do. And so if you look at Charlottesville, for instance, they have two Confederate general monuments there. And one of them is actually somewhat artistically significant. Um, and the other one is basically a cheap hunk of bronze, um, if I'm being polite. Um, and so, you know, perhaps one of them could be preserved and put in storage for a few years or 20 years and then brought out for an exhibit because it's artistically significant. We don't display all the art we preserve though at any time. So there's nothing wrong with taking some of these more artistically significant. For instance, the Calhoun monument would be a good one, I think to put away for a while, rather than put it on display right away, wait 20 years, put it on display in 20 years to talk about what happened today as an artifact of today. And then as an artifact of the Jim Crow era and do an exhibit on how Charleston's race relations changed in 20 or 40 years, right? The same thing with um, the Lee monument in Richmond. It's too raw right now to leave up, but in 30 years, it could be used as a historic artifact to teach about now. I hope they don't race the paint on the one in, in Richmond. You know, they've done this beautiful job painting it. And it's an amazing experience if you have a chance to go to Richmond before they remove it. I highly recommend it. I stopped a few weeks ago or a week ago um, in Richmond to see this. You get there and there's African-Americans standing on it, taking their photos of themselves doing the Black Power salute or holding a sign that says Black Lives Matter. And there's a, people playing basketball. They set up a basketball court and people are having picnics and people are, are doing. A, I saw someone doing a music video, a bunch of kids. They were like maybe 14 years old doing their own sort of music video. It was very kind of cute and adorable. And this is a space in Richmond that was literally created to keep African-Americans out. There were rules. African-Americans could not move into this neighborhood. Right. It could not purchase houses in this neighborhood. It had a, a covenant on it. That space has been reclaimed by the African-American community. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to see the way that a space that had historically been meant to intimidate them is now being possessed by all citizens. And it's a mixed race group that you'll see there. Whites are there. Blacks are there. It's, it's a space that if you drove by it 10 years ago, nobody was ever there. You might see one tourist getting their photo kind of like awkwardly in front of Lee. And now it's, it's a crowd. You have to wait your turn. Um, maybe move them all to one park. I've always, right. I love what they did in some of the Soviet, former Soviet republics where they put all the Stalin and Lenin in one park, take them all to stone mountain, put them all in stone mountain. Imagine if you went to stone mountain today and instead of just seeing the mine carving on the side of the mountain, you had 23 Lees in front of it 
and 12 Jacksons and 48 <laughs> common soldier monuments all lined up together. That would be a way we could teach both about the Civil War and about Jim Crow and about our history of commemorative landscapes. That's a way we can teach history because these monuments aren't teaching history. They're often leading us to a, a false version of history. Yeah, I said on, on that note, I, I think um, that's probably a reasonable place to, yeah. to leave the conversation. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about yeah, your book um, before we go? Uh, I know we mentioned yeah, it up so, at the top. Um, but um, So my book is, is, is about the way that we remember the Civil War or white Southerners. Let me rephrase that. The book is about how white Southerners have historically remembered the Civil War. And it argues that this lost cause narrative of the past that glorifies white Southerners, claims the war wasn't about slavery, presents slavery as a benevolent institution, despite it being a horrible institution with no redeeming value, and remembers Confederate soldiers as the greatest soldiers of all time, was not only used to uphold white supremacy, it also argued that that narrative of the past was fundamentally false, and that these lies were created to uphold white supremacy. And it deals with both Confederate monuments, and it looks at what was said when monuments went up, and says, let's take Confederate veterans at their words what they wanted these monuments to be remembered as. And we take them at their words, and we see that they wanted them to be monuments to white supremacy. So by the false cause, fraud, fabrication, and white supremacy and Confederate memory. Make your favorite local books up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks so much for joining us, taking, taking the time. And uh, so the second, the second historian that we spoke with is uh, Bernard Powers. He's a professor emeritus of history at the College of Charleston and is the director of the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston. He's also the interim CEO of the International African American Museum, which is under construction right now here on the Charleston Peninsula. Um, so here's our interview with him. This is the third... Um, interview we've done today, and this is the third time that I thought we were going to be able to get reaction to somebody after the statue is finally down. And for the third oh, time, yeah. it is still <laughs> okay. still okay. still is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone said he is he is quite stubborn. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Quite that stubborn. That is definitely true. We just wanted to. Uh, talk with you, well, for a, a few different reasons, and and one of them is is because of what um, Mayor Tecklenburg announced last night uh, during the city council meeting that you would be one of the people leading the discussions about where to put Calhoun when he does come down, whenever that may be. Yeah. So yeah. to to. Uh, to to clarify for for listeners, we are recording this interview. It's it's just about quarter till five, and the statue is still still not down. So just to give give that update. Um, but when it does come down, uh, that you will be one of the people uh, leading those discussions. Like I said about about where the statue will go. So I was wondering if you have any idea at this time of possibilities of where and just. What are some of the most important considerations when you're making that decision? Right. And uh, actually, right now, uh, don't have any, any specific locations in mind. Um, so we'll be putting together a, oh, I guess you'd call it maybe a, uh, some kind of advisory board that will provide some guidance in the form of some suggestions to the history commission uh, as to um, I guess what what kinds of things ought to be considered in determining a, a location who would have authority over the uh, the statue and so on and just thinking about that um, I certainly think and 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 I believe that probably any group that we'd put together would would agree that the public needs to have access to the statue. It needs to be in a location that's that's obviously protected, and it also needs to be in a situation where uh, the statue can be appropriately interpreted, so that we understand uh, 
its its history, its meaning, so that the people who put it up uh, will be identified and recognized, um, and their values associated with the uh, with the statue, as well as uh, the uh, events that uh, led to the displacement and the removal of the statue. And that has to be contextualized and the people, you know, really meaning the, you know, the groups of of people uh, and the concerns that that they had. I'm wondering just in your own words, how you would describe the significance of the fact that the statue is coming down today one of the the things i was i was thinking about is how um the international african-american museum which is being built right now on the peninsula in which you are the interim ceo of right now um i remember going to the uh the museum's offices for the staff for the first time and uh from that doorway i know that the calhoun monument is visible right there and um Mm -hmm. And then Emmanuel is also visible from that from that doorstep of those offices. So I was just wondering, in your own words, like I said, what what is the significance of this statue coming down today? Yeah, it's a it's a very significant uh, event. And let me let me just tell you uh, just a quick little story. Uh, when I went to register to vote in uh, uh, 1992, yeah, 1992. Uh, the county election offices were over there in uh, the the old the old Citadel building, and so when I walked over there from from my office over at the college, I walked very close to the Calhoun statue and looked up at him and kind of grinned because I knew I was going over to do something that he never would have allowed, never would have been in favor of, and thought to myself, yes, he's got to be spinning in his, in his grave. So, um, and of course, I'm, I'm not from Charleston, but, but I know the significance of John C. Calhoun and understand that uh, he was a reviled figure amongst African Americans in, in the city. You know, this object has been uh, an object of revulsion and anathema. It, it, it has inspired disdain on the part of, of African-Americans in the community since the very first one went up in, in 1887. It clearly uh, it embodies an individual whose entire life revolved around, around slavery. Uh, and not just that. But uh, one who was one of the main architects of the pro-slavery argument, so he he reveled in slavery and believed that it was the best of all possible foundations upon which to build a society. Excuse, uh, excuse me, just one second. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, okay. My wife is telling me the statue. They're taking the statue off. Now. Oh, yeah. So, oh, so right okay. now, <laughs> <laughs> right. Do, do you do you want to watch it? Is is that is that what she's saying? Or oh, you... oh, no, 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 no. Okay, we, yeah. We, we continue. She was she was just excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Excited. yeah. No, we've been yeah. waiting for this yeah. all day. Yeah, I'm waiting for it. all day and night. Right, I guess. right, right. I know one of the statues that I wanted to ask you about was one that is. Not too old in in Charleston, not too old at all, and also is of someone who I've heard this name um, mentioned, uh, well, heard it mentioned, seen it on social media mentioned as people are speculating um, if there might be a person who replaces Calhoun in that place, and and if so, whom, and that's um, Denmark Vesey, and I know that you were involved in... um, Getting a statue built in in Hampton Park, but that that was not always a, a popular idea, right? So I guess just first of all, can you describe for anyone who may not know who he was um, and just some of his significance to Charleston? 
Sure. So, uh, yeah, Denmark Den Vesey was, uh, we, we believe that he was born on the island of St. Thomas in, the, in what is today the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, and I believe the date is uh, 1767, the late 1760s. Uh, lived until 1822 when he was executed by state authority. Uh, he was born into slavery and uh, was enslaved for a brief period of time on uh, uh, the island of Hispaniola, where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are located today. Uh, he would have been enslaved on the Haitian side. Then it was known as Saint-Domingue, uh, a French possession. Uh, but uh, before he came, before he was brought to Charleston in 1783, he was uh, owned by a... Uh, man whose, whose last name is Vesey, Joseph Vesey. And Joseph Vesey was a, uh, uh, a merchant uh, and dealt in uh, uh, commerce on the high seas, engaged in maritime trade and ferrying uh, goods from one place to another in the Caribbean. Uh, eventually, uh, Joseph Vesey, who owned Denmark, would come to Charleston 1783, just uh, after the American Revolution. And uh, he continues his business, uh, really supplying ships with uh, the necessities for, for uh, make, making the kind of voyages that they, that they did routinely. And he used Denmark in that, uh, in that business, uh, supplying the maritime trade of other ships and merchants. Uh, uh, eventually, Denmark Vesey, and eventually is really 1799, uh, and Denmark Vesey bought a uh, lottery ticket, and he ended up uh, winning a sizable amount of money through that lottery, $1,500, and his owner allowed him to purchase his freedom with a portion of his winnings. And so in 1800, Denmark Vesey, then passes over uh, from slavery to freedom, becomes a free man, is a carpenter by trade, uh, who pick up that, that skill. Uh, and, so, and so he's free. Uh, he'll have uh, children and in succession, in, in succession more, more than one uh, wife or paramour in the city. But Vesey was not satisfied with his own freedom believe that, well, because a free black was not fully free, uh, that individual socially was suspended somewhere between whites who had complete freedom and enslaved people who represented the absence of freedom. Well, free blacks were suspended socially somewhere between those two statuses. So that was an unsatisfactory position to occupy for him personally, but also he was, um, he was never able to, because some, some of his children were, were enslaved, and so he was never able to liberate them. Uh, and he was generally dissatisfied with the fact that typically uh, black people in Charleston were, 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 were slaves. And so uh, he would cooperate with other enslaved people to organize a conspiracy to overthrow uh, slavery in Charleston, or to at least severely cripple it. Uh, and the plan was supposed to be implemented in the summer of 1822. Uh, but unfortunately for him and his compatriots, word of the conspiracy leaked out, authorities found out about it. There were subsequent arrests and executions. And uh, Denmark Basie uh, would be tried and executed with uh, 34 other people for their for their efforts, um, and the conspiracy never matured into a rebellion. Uh, Vesey was a man who uh, was a leader in what was known as the African Church uh, of that time, and uh, the African. Church was the lineal antecedent 
of the congregation we know today as Mother Emmanuel, because the African Church uh, of 1818 to 1822 was the southernmost branch of the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and Daisy was involved in that church, uh, along with a number of the other uh, his other co-conspirators. And when this was determined, uh, the church considered already to be a hotbed of radicalism. And it was for the for the time period because the AME Church was uh, an abolitionist church, and so to have created it an abolitionist church in downtown Charleston was a revolutionary act. And so when Basie's linkage to the African Church, as well as the linkage of other conspirators to that church, uh, was determined, then that became the rationale for the complete just complete dismantling and destruction of the African church. And so there'd be no Emmy church in uh, South Carolina until after the Civil War, when the church is reestablished in the form of the congregation that today we know as, as Mother Emmanuel. So, yeah, so Vesey uh, is a very, very important figure. Uh, we eventually put up a statue to his memory in uh, during Black History Month of 2014. Uh, over in Hampton Square, the original uh, location we had hoped to construct the statue was, in fact, in Marion Square, which would be the perfect location uh, for Vesey because uh, his church is directly uh, east of the square. Uh, the citadel is on the northern part of the square, and the citadel really represented the antidote to Vesey. Uh, because once the conspiracy was discovered, uh, the city and state authorities concluded that um, that that place ought to be heavily fortified, and eventually the South Carolina Military Academy is established there, 1842, and its purpose was to ensure that in the event of, a, of another attempted insurrection, white men would have the uh, military preparedness and the martial arts and martial skills to be able to, to, to put it down. And so the Citadel, which stands there in Marion Square today, uh, is a vestige of white supremacy and the felt need that, um, that the slaveholders and their supporters had uh, the belief that they needed to always be prepared to control black lives and black bodies, uh, which were always considered dangerous. And certainly John C. Calhoun, as a, as a planter, believed those things, too. Why was it that the statue was not built in, in Marion Square as had been initially intended, like you just said? Yeah, because uh, we, we could not get the approval of the owners of Marion Square uh, the Washington Light Infantry and the Sumter Guard. Uh, in fact, in fact, at you know before we embarked on this effort to build the monument uh, and to have it placed on public grounds because we thought that that was that would be very important uh, as a as 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 one means of giving additional legitimacy to to Denmark Basie in this modern era. Uh, but we found out that the city doesn't own Marion Square, but that it, it's in private hands and, and the city is essentially the, the caretaker. So we approached those two organizations, Washington Light Infantry and Sumter Guard, to, to ask permission. And uh, they, they just were not, were not willing to uh, allow the monument. So one of the things I wanted to ask about, too, so that's an ex example of a statue monument that was constructed, like you said, pretty recently. That was just 2014. We're at this time, of course, where people are looking at existing monuments and reevaluating them. And in some instances, like with Calhoun, considering whether or not to take them down. And then in addition to that, I think people are asking questions about what should go in their place. What new monuments should we be uh, constructing? I know that you you gave that other example, too, of your idea for, for White Point Garden. What is What are some of the things as a 
as a historian, I would say especially, that you think need to be considered, you know, for, for both of these questions, I guess, the, the questions about what should stay and then what should be built. As a, as a historian, and I know a number of professional historians feel the same way, uh, one of the things that we have to be careful about now is that uh, we take great uh, care and be very prudent in identifying uh, objects and representations of, uh, of the past that need to be removed or, the, or, or where buildings need to have names change uh, because you know we simply we simply can't just remove all of the images and names associated with slaveholding for example because with with slaveholding and or and or segregation for that matter because think of that I mean if we did that uh, then I don't think you're gonna have any well, you'd have very few. You'd have very few monuments and names uh, on buildings uh, that remain intact in in Charleston. Uh, certainly, certainly, very few that are representative of the period before the civil rights era. You know, and. Uh, that would that would not be a uh, a desirable goal. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington were slaveholders, but they did other things too that are very important. And uh, we stand in the uh, legacy of what both those men did. Now, now on the other hand, now someone like, for example. Benjamin Tillman. I don't think buildings need to be named after him. Here is a fellow who was not just a rabid racist, not just a rabid racist, there are plenty of rabid racists, but who was implicated in the murder of black people in the form of the Hamburg Massacre. And he said that he was there. And a man who would rationalize, well, a a man who admitted that he was involved in promoting every means to take the vote, the right to vote away from black people in the election of 1876 and in the subsequent uh, South Carolina Constitutional Convention of 1895. Why do we need to have a building named after such a villain? So that's how we can we can make a comparison and a contrast between people like Jefferson and Madison and Washington and so on and, and a uh, and a Ben Tillman. We mentioned this uh, uh, briefly in, in our discussion in the middle of it, but just wanted to let listeners know that just after 5 p.m. the statue did come down. Um, so we've been yeah. following along with this throughout throughout mm -hmm. the day, doing a few different interviews and checking in. So it yeah. has come down officially, uh, like I said, just after 5 p.m. Um, on June 24th, 2020. Yeah. I think this will be the day that people remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. And... And, and contrary to what people have said, because uh, they haven't really thought about this, history has not been erased. We've just made more history. Yeah, we've 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 written another page of history. Yeah, and there'll be numerous other pages yet to come in the wake of what of what has happened. I think that's uh, I think that's, that's a, a, I think that's a great way to to, to wrap up and yeah do you agree Emery yeah yeah it's a, a beautiful thought um, and thank you thank you again so much for for taking your time okay you all take care take care all right all right listeners thanks so much for listening this week uh, remember if you have any comments questions or suggestions for this podcast you can find us on Twitter at understand SC and we'll be back next week. All right.
All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.